We live in a world of dynamic cyber threats, but one thing is clear, human behavior is the most vulnerable target for attacks. Welcome to Behave by CyberSafe, the foremost cybersecurity podcast focused on human cyber risk. Organizational awareness is no longer enough, so how will your team stay protected? Be sure to subscribe to Behave on your preferred listening app for cutting edge insights into our evolving industry and stay ahead of the shift to security behaviors and human risk quantification. Enjoy the episode. Hello, we're back again. Another episode of the Behave podcast. I wanted to quickly start by saying thank you. The feedback we've received since the launch has been overwhelmingly positive. People have been incredibly kind, and I'm convinced this is only really down to our lineup of amazing guests. This brings me nicely on to today's guest, uh, Alicia Chambers. Alicia is the Security Engagement and Culture Manager at Tesco, where she has now been for five years. I've known her personally for almost four years now, so we go way back. I'm actually struggling to contain my excitement for this episode. She's a true visionary in this space and one of the most fascinating people to listen to. So I'm very glad we are able to have this chat recorded. So without further ado, Alicia, hello and welcome to the Behave podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. No, it's great to see you. I'm, like I said in in my intro, I am so glad uh, we finally managed to do this and and lock you in for, for this episode. I know, we've been like passing ships in the night, but thanks very much for your patience. I'm excited. Yeah, for sure. As is tradition now on the podcast, on my recordings of the podcast, the icebreaker question, it's starting to become a bit of a um, a thing that is debated now on LinkedIn or wherever. And I have people messaging me now saying, hey, we'd love to be a part of this, but I really just want to kind of tell people the pizza I love. So <laughs> the icebreaker question, you're ordering pizza you could choose four toppings apart from obviously your cheese and your tomato base. What are you going for? Do I have to switch a topping for stuffed crust or is that just something that comes with it? Because a pizza is not worth eating without a stuffed crust. No, I'm going to say you can swap a topping for stuffed crust. Amazing, right? Then we're well on the way to a good pizza. So definitely some stuffed crust with cheese, nothing else. I don't need anything fancy. Just the more cheese, the better. And then I'll take some mushroom, some olives and a bell pepper or two. Okay, I'm getting I'm getting veggie vibes. Veggie vibes, yeah, yeah. Vegetarian over here. Okay, amazing. Love that. I mean, we're gonna I'm gonna have such a great database of all the pizzas that people in the security industry love. <laughs> We've had some good answers already, but I'm gonna kind of like keep racking them up over over time as we do more more recordings of the podcast. Thanks for that. We can now get on to I guess the more more interesting stuff. Your role obviously is security engagement and culture manager. If somebody stopped you in the street and said, What do you do? In, I guess, a sentence, that's probably impossible to do. But what, what, what do you do? What does that look like? I think I could probably most succinctly say it's to empower colleagues to understand and to care about how to do their job securely, which is a little bit fluffy because it doesn't go into the detail. But if I went into the detail, it'd be a lot longer than a sentence. <laughs> it would. It would. But I like that. I love this. There is a an overwhelming sense. And I know Mads and Leanne on a previous episode, they both said about empowering and again just getting that whole kind of collective interest and giving people the right tools and the right information and the right knowledge it's certainly becoming a thing now for that and as i said like this shift in in what we're seeing and how it's moving from that standard area of security awareness into this this new era which we have taken spoken about at length before and got quite frustrated not with each other but with the industry about is um is super cool and off that, 
your view on the relationship between cybersecurity and human psychology. There is a there is a big obviously intersection there. I know that we've we've again spoken about it in the past. You you recently hired for a cyber secure, cyber psychology engagement analyst role. What was your thinking behind it? Yeah, we did. We um we hired in a, I think about five months ago now. So I'm really fortunate in that we have a lot of support from our security leadership team, but also Tesco leadership team. And as I sat down and started thinking about it, and, and we've definitely talked about this before, haven't we, Ben? But there is so much of the human element involved in cybersecurity that we we tend to have just historically ignored. Not deliberately, I don't think, but because when you think cyber, you think tech and you think it's a tech issue that can be solved with tech solutions. And I think more and more we're moving towards this element of it isn't tech hacking tech. It's people compromising other people's information or systems. And there's people at both ends of that. And if we can't understand the people and we can't get ourselves into the attacker mindset to use it to help defend us ourselves against it, then we're always going to be fighting a losing battle. So when we started to approach it from a cyber psychology engagement analyst point of view, I did. I started to do a lot of research and I started to look into a lot of different things. And, and I started to challenge my own assumptions because I'm sure you've heard it as well, Ben. We've had for a long time, I used to say to people, it takes about 21 days, about 21 days to build a habit, right? So if I can get people to repeat an action, I can build a behavior, a behavioral habit within 21 days. And I started to look into that. And I realized that it was actually a chap called Maxwell Maltz, who had written a book. And he was actually a plastic surgeon who had just made the observation that when he'd amputate an arm, or he'd give someone a nose job, it took them on average 21 days to feel comfortable looking at their face in the mirror or realizing that that limb was no longer there. So he quoted it in the book and said, it takes a minimum of 21 days. And this is way back in the 1950s. Now, it's funny that he said it's a minimum of 21 days, but somehow in time, we've, we've taken away the minimum and just said it takes 21 days. So then when I started to look into it further, there's been some researchers, particularly at UCL, who've looked into it. And, and I think the lady's name was Philippa Lally. And she was a researcher who, who got together around 100 people and said, how long does it really take to build a habit? And of these 100 people, and I think they ran it for about 12, 13 weeks, this exercise, and they deduced that it took anywhere from 18 days to 250 odd days to build a habit. So when we say a minimum of 21 days, we are massively underestimating how different people are, what kinds of approaches it's going to need to take. And when I realized that and I challenged my own beliefs, I realized I'm not going to get as far as I could get if I play at being an expert in psychology or neuroscience. So trying to hire in a cyber psychology engagement analyst with the blessings of our leadership team was to say this is a people-centric issue and challenge. Let's bring in an expert in that domain to learn how to apply it within cyber. And that's kind of where we came from when we started with the role. God, that's so interesting. And uh, there's a point that you mentioned there that obviously you are amazing and there are things obviously you are, you excel at and you do very well at, but as a leader, being able to identify the things that, you know, you go, you know what, I think we can, that that's not my forte, that's not my strength. I'm going to bring in somebody who this is their thing. This is what they are amazing at. And it's so important. And also being able to then have that resource as part of a security team, that's so powerful. Oh, invaluable. And I think where you see DE&I be such a big topic, I think awareness teams are the teams that can really take advantage of a diverse pool of thought more than any other team today, largely because 
there are so many transferable skills into our kinds of teams. And that resource is invaluable because it doesn't just challenge us as awareness teams. It helps us to get a foothold to challenge our own security teams, to challenge our tech teams, and then to go away and challenge our people and our colleagues in a way that isn't confrontational and it isn't hitting them with the digital security stick. And it is really there to empower them. And we can't do it if we take the age old mindset of, I'm just going to wrap up this huge amount of knowledge and, and information because I'm an expert in this domain and I'm just going to throw it all at you and expect you to now behave differently. And I do I agree completely. The resource and, and the diversity that we can bring with that type of resource is invaluable. Yeah, I was chuckling then at the, uh, I remember when we very, very first spoke, the things that stuck stuck with me was you mentioning that digital security stick and people just being repetitively hit with it, not physically, but just do your training. Here's more training. Do this. Here's more to do. And like you say, like we have a range of people in an organization and who also can could pick up a habit within 18 days, but it could be 200 plus days. Having that range of people who are maybe in their teens all the way up to kind of past 70, maybe, who haven't used tech their entire life and haven't kind of got that, that ability to fully understand it and grasp it. It matters. Yeah, I really wanted to bring that up because I think people listening to the podcast will also now be thinking, okay, well, from a psychology perspective, who can we get in? We obviously have the whole behavioral science team, vast amount of resource there with people with incredible backgrounds. But I don't think people perhaps maybe look at it and go, actually, yeah, you know what? That could be a really valuable resource to have in a team because they can apply it to so many different things. Yeah, that, that was super interesting. And thank you for sharing. I know that you have kind of four different approaches that your team take in reducing human cyber risk. It's general awareness, technical training, learning and development, and then socio-technical R&D. Why did you choose those four kind of key pillars, I suppose? Yeah, I think um, we did a lot of, we've, we've done a lot and continue to do so. A lot of discussing with our key stakeholders in security and then outside of security. What is it that you need? And so I was fortunate enough a couple of years back to go on a UCL behavioral science course and they they talk about change and, and the combi model, which is great because I know CybeSafe use it a lot and they refer to it a lot. And it and it absolutely stumped me. And I started to look into it more and more and I thought, when you have a, a typical or traditional security awareness team, they're only filling one element of all of those things that can be that can change behaviors. So we sat down and we started to look at it and you start to self-reflect a lot. And I think this is something we don't do enough in the industry. When we talk about changing behaviors or changing cultures, we talk about it theoretically and academically. And then when we go to put it into application, we're frustrated with the users for not doing the thing it is that we want them to do. I'd have to put my hands up and say, I'm not an 18 or a 21 day habit builder. I would definitely be more towards the 200 day part. So when I get frustrated over things, I have to start self-reflecting a lot more. And for me, and, and we know about the knowledge for getting curb, right? We know that actually within a month, we've lost about 20% of what we've learned. So if I'm a traditional awareness team and I get the luxury of teaching you once a quarter rather than once a year, you've still a month later forgotten 80% of what I've taught you. So yes, I can empower you and I can, I can make it more of a social norm by giving you a one-off piece of education, whether it be one, one off in a quarter or one off in a year but I'm not really instilling the things you need from me to change that behavior. And I think it's that, that self-reflection to go, I'm not doing enough. My team and I aren't doing enough to, to really empower our colleagues. If that is the goal and the vision, we can't get there through just awareness. 
But awareness plays a massive, and in a company of our size, scalable part in that. So it's definitely a very, very foundational element to the to the team and where we're trying to, to get to awareness, we'd get nowhere without it. I think then for us, the technical training is really, really realizing and, and accepting and sinking our teeth into the challenge of not everyone is the same and not every role presents the same type of risk and the same type of skills required to reduce that risk in your role, right? General awareness. I can teach you how to spot phishing and I can teach you why it's important for you to have a strong password. It is a lot harder to convert that or translate that into how do you code securely? And how do we make sure that as a product manager, you're prioritizing building remediation and pulling it out of your backlog when it's appropriate? That is a totally different type of way and type of training. So I think we started to really invest a lot more into that as a team to say, it isn't fair and it isn't good enough that we hit technical experts with very general content. Yes, they, they deserve that too, but they need a lot more from us to, for us to stand on our two feet and say that we've done the best that we could have done for them. So those, those two elements for us is where it began and where it became really powerful for us to start trying to understand how we would make more changes. But then in both of those elements, you're still only talking about education and awareness, really. And again, that is all capability, right? We haven't even ventured into what are the opportunities? What are the resources? Where's the time coming from that we need from these colleagues to be able to do what it is that we're asking of them? And then once they have that capability and opportunity, how are we motivating them? To everyone not in security, security is not that exciting. So how are we going to motivate them to care about this topic? Because we can't do the same things that would motivate us because we're intrinsically motivated. So we have to start thinking about what are those different things that we can do. And that's a huge part of where the socio-technical research and development comes in. Because let's stop all assumptions and let's remember that no two people are the same. And in a big organization like ours, we are always going to fail if we assume one size fits all. So let's start really unpacking what culture means and how we, and how behaviors and perceptions and values and attitudes contribute to that. And if we don't have the right folks doing that kind of research and development for us, we can't speak to them in a language that they find easily relatable. We can't teach them concepts that are very important to them but maybe not so important to their to it appear or someone in a different function or business channel. But we also can't empower our own security teams to build products and solutions that make security simple. Because a lot of people find it challenging and find security clunky and they'll go around it and they'll do weird and wonderful things to go around it because we didn't consider them in the beginning of designing that solution. And I think that's where the socio-technical element comes in is where we started to realize we need to be the voice of our colleagues with security, not because security kind of are dismissive or, or don't care about what they want, but because security, we can often find that we live in a little bubble. And if you're always security conscious, you begin to develop that curse of knowledge that says, I do this day in and day out. So this should be really simple for you to understand. But if you've never heard of this concept, of course, it's not easy for you to understand. And of course, it's going to take a little bit longer for you to come to grips with it. So we decided that the socio-technical R&D element helps us to speak to security about what our colleagues need, but it also helps us understand what they need for us to deliver to them in a much deeper way than we've ever been able to do it before. We've got scale down pat, but how do we get the depth of insight that they're seeking from us in a way that matters? If, if you're a store colleague, you do not care about learning about phishing because you don't have access to an email address. But actually, if you're a colleague in technology, you care about phishing, you care about secure coding, you care about all these things relevant to your role. 
And then you care about how we communicate it to you as if we're peers and not as if we're the digital police telling you what to do. So that's where that aspect comes from. And then the final element of learning and development is really, it's kind of coaching. Because again, if we talk about that habit building, for anything to become habitual, you need to thoroughly understand it. And then you need to understand how to apply it in your area. Now, I think historically teams have done a really good job at helping people understand the problem, maybe a little bit too much. We give them too much information. But when you get down to the the core of changing behaviors, what people really need to understand is why does it matter and what do I need to do? Right. All the extra stuff is jargon that you can you can send them off to a resource somewhere else to find. But your core population, about 80 percent, just want to know why and what do I do? And the learning and development side is about understanding how do we explore things like culture sprints? And if we're going to work at at two weekly culture sprints, how do we send out a coach or somebody to embed that new way of working into this team and to be there to constantly nudge them and constantly trigger their memory and remind them that this is what you need to do until we can see that has become a sustainable and habitual behavior. And then we can say that we've empowered them. But until that point, we don't believe we will have done enough to say that we're doing all we can to empower colleagues, which is where those four different pillars and different approaches come from. Oh my God. I'm just, I'm so glad we are recording this. <laughs> you can literally drop the mic and now walk. We don't need to record anything else. There's so many things I could unpack in there. There's one piece in there around, it's not fair that we have this blanket approach, but also we expect people to get it. Or like you say, you have store employees that you're talking about, talking about fishing, or you have people who work from home and you're teaching them behave security behaviors around like not letting people tailgate you or using your access token. This hyper-personalization piece is a big one. I know they covered it in the Forrester report that came out a couple of weeks ago, but I think that's now the way we're going to have to go. And you are clearly nailing it at Tesco in, in that you are you understand it, but I don't think everybody gets that. They go, right, we have to, because of ISO 27001, we have to train all of our employees. So we are just going to give them all cybersecurity training. The IT team get it and go, well, I kind of know all this. It's kind of insulting, like not a black mark against the cybersecurity team, but that's kind of insulting. Cheers. And it's a waste of my time. It creates that kind of culture around, okay, well, the security team clearly don't get us because we are vastly technical and, and that thinking. So it's super interesting to, to know how you've gone about that. Um, and I think people are going to absolutely love that the whole piece that we've just gone through. Is there anything you wanted to comment on the hyper-personalization piece? Yeah, I completely agree with that and uh, with you on that. And I think that a lot more people are going towards it. I think what I would love to hear from any of your guests on anything like this is how do you then scale that? Because I think that is the challenge, right? How do you scale it and how do you do it quickly? And, and the goal really, if we bring you into the retail world, being Tesco, is if you go to shop online at Tesco, I can deduce or our systems can deduce you're a vegetarian. So we should only suggest to you vegetarian options. And we have all these different insights on, on types of, of shoppers to understand how to best cater to you because we're a very people-centric organization. How can we get there with security? So that all of your content is very specific to you and not just specific to your role and what you should know, but specific to your behaviors. And if we know that you hop on your phone late at night just before bed to check your emails, and that is when you are most susceptible to phishing, how do we get you the nudge at the right time then? But not actually bombard you with lots of different types of initiatives or content that you don't need unless it's just in time. 
And how do we get to that point? And I think as we're beginning to explore and develop our ability to understand our colleagues better and how to communicate with them and how to educate them and coach them, I think our next big challenge is going to be how do we scale that across 400,000 colleagues? It's an exciting challenge to sink our teeth into. And I think we don't today have all the answers. And we're really looking forward to learning from others in industry on how they're going to do it. Yeah, for sure. And there's a big piece on using meaningful data metrics. The data's there, a lot of it, but it's pulling it. It's all in different locations and places. And we need to pull it into a central place where we can just go, right, okay, how do we do this? I was talking to Dan at Gymshark, might have been about a year ago, about polymorphic nudging. Nudge is a big buzzword that is obviously out in the industry at the moment. But I think there's a very stark difference between nudges, alerts, just-in-time interventions, point of risk interventions. I spoke about it on the last past podcast. I think that this, like you say, at what point do we intervene and use have all that data together? And I think people wanted it yesterday, but how do we find out that kind of in future we can get it to the point where it is helping people at the point they need it? So no, a, a super interesting point. Yeah, and data is going to play a massive part. And I agree with you. I think the data is there. We, un- we need to understand where is it and how do we harness it? And it will just take us leaps and bounds from where we are today. Yeah, agreed. My next question, I think we covered it very briefly in the last point that you mentioned, but you have a very clearly a very progressive in-house program running at Tesco, one which I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this would be extremely jealous of, myself included. What do you think is contributing to that success? So if I think back to about four or five years ago when I joined the team, there was two of us to scale the program across sort of 450,000 people at the time. And I think the one piece that I will absolutely say was the right decision was when I joined the team, it had been built by people who had been security experts and had lots of knowledge in security and they had all the right qualifications and everything. Where I struggled, because I was fairly new to Tesco at the time, was I didn't know Tesco well enough to understand what excited people and what didn't excite them and and what was the right way to speak to certain people and how was I going to get around things like capacity planning to make sure that I got on the right plans to, to issue my training. So we internally hunted and sought out someone who could join our team, had all the will and the want in the world to learn about cybersecurity, but had some of the fundamental skills. And we built then, we, we started to look at how do we transfer their skills of data analysis and training and teaching and actually then build up the cybersecurity knowledge. And we were really, really fortunate in finding an individual who did that. And I think because I myself came from recruitment, so I didn't historically come from cyber either. I came from people and I knew how to chat to folks and what made people tick and things like that. I think we together decided that it was us against the world and we were going to figure out how to make this work and how to grow it and how to develop it. And it meant that where people would see things and go, well, it's always been that way. It was brand new information to us and we were very prepared to challenge it. And I think for all of the time that we've spent in this team and developing it out, it started there. And it started with people who didn't have the technical expertise, but had the passion and the drive to want to change things that is has grown and flourished. And it's grown into having an extremely supportive security leadership team and in general security team, because we like people and because we want to help, we have fantastic relationships with them. Our security teams will come to us before we go to them and say, we're starting to see these behaviors 
Are they of interest to you? Are there things that you think you can do? And we've developed and nurtured those relationships. And our security leadership have been much more bought in, which is great and fantastic for us because it means that we then get to build and develop the team and and build out bigger and more visionary strategy. And I think fundamentally, it comes down to Tesco as a culture, which is great because we talk a lot about culture anyways, but it's a very people-centered organization. We really care and we genuinely do. It isn't just one of those things that people say, you know it from the minute that you walk through the door. People ask more often than not, is that the right thing to do? And I think it was really evident quite quickly, the more our Tesco leadership teams heard about cyber, the more they became concerned with what are we doing with our people? How are we empowering our people to do the right things? And how are we making sure that we shoulder that responsibility to our customers because we care about them in every way, shape and form? So how do we behind the scenes make sure we're doing the right things? So I think in a nutshell, it'd be the culture was always going to nurture the growth of a team like this. And I say that knowing that not every organization has that type of culture. So I think when I speak to others and they look at my team and they think, oh, you're so lucky. How did you get there? I have to contribute a huge part of that to how welcoming and inclusive the culture at Tesco is in general. And then I think the other element is having a security leadership and security team who are on board with your plans anyways, because they will stop excluding you and start bringing you into the problem solving conversations and starting with the right people in your team. Get the right people on that bus, get people in who no matter what and no matter how many setbacks and knocks you get, they will, they will be resilient and they will stay on track to achieve that vision of empowering people. There's uh, so many points there that I, I totally agree with. And, and that leadership point is a, is a big one. There will be people listening that perhaps don't have that. It's not as progressive. And I know a lot of people who have gone to Tesco and, and every time we've spoken, you've said, I'm just very lucky that I have that support from leadership. And to an extent, I had that at Dyson and it, it makes such a difference. It's really helping them see that vision and, and how it can work. And there is a shift happening. It, it is becoming talked about more. CISOs are talking about it more. CIOs, CTOs, whoever it is at that level, that is now becoming something that's that's cropping up again, this human risk part, and that we can now quantify it and that we can now measure it and change it. But being able to to do that is is super important. And I kind of, we both would emphasize that. Yeah. And I think it is that quantification of the data and actually being able to relay it in a way that your leadership teams would care about. For, for folks who have very different cultures in their organizations, when I've spoken to them sort of one-to-one, I found that, that you have to speak their language, right? So I'm fortunate in that my leadership team's language is our people. Other organizations, if it's data, if it's sales, if it's profit, whatever it is, you have to figure out a way to translate what you're trying to achieve into a business case that speaks to their vision And then I I suspect, and and when I've spoken to people one-on-one, it's had more of an influence on their leadership team. But hey, you're talking about a culture of an organization, right? And we know as people working in the field, it takes from three to 10 years to do it. So, and, And we've been in our team for four years. So we are starting to see the grassroots and the growth and the development of that, that cultural change just within our awareness team. So I would encourage anyone who's kind of slogging along and feeling that they're fighting a losing battle to stick at it because I definitely think it's achievable. You just have to figure out the right way to communicate your message and stay consistent with it. I agree. So good. Oh, there's just so much gold coming out of this episode. I absolutely love it. I kind of on the advice piece again, a lot of people might turn up in organizations or be handed the security awareness piece in their organization without maybe choosing it. They might have chosen it, but it's a completely blank slate. 
the organization turn around and go, we align to NIST, we align to ISO 27001, therefore we have to do tick box training. Mad as that sounds, and we have to fish our employees and that's all we really care about. Do you have any advice to people of how they might break out of this? Some of that comes, so I think you know already that you're, you're going to have an, an uphill battle if you are, if you've been voluntold that you will do a, an awareness program, right? And I think that you, whether, well, there's two things, right? One, you might not be bought into it. And one, you might just decide that you're going to spend 10% of your time on it. And that's it, because that's all you really care to give it. And that's unfortunate. And I think there are ways to leverage our community to help you, because a lot of folks in our community want to help one another because we've all been there and we've all been fighting that battle. So whether it's your passion and you're really invested in it or not, leverage the network and the insights and and all the open source intelligence out there across our community to help support you in the ways that you need. I think what you will find is that as more and more comparison tools come out there, that people will see that actually just having that tick box training program isn't good enough. We are seeing that in some of the GDPR fines that that are being handed out, right? There are things that people need to consider and not just in the training you're developing, but in the people who are not doing your training are now people that could potentially result in you having a penalty fine for it. So I think there is an element of compliance that needs to be done to reassure the right people in the right places that you're doing the right things. But that is the bare minimum and almost the foundation of what you should be trying to achieve. And sometimes in some organizations, that's what you need to strive for. Because I think when we start to develop ourselves and we all start to get into like-minded communities. We look at the compliance focused folks and we go, well, that's a hundred years ago. Why are we still focused on that? But actually these people are doing great things and getting their organization from no program to a compliance focused program. And that is a big effort in itself. It's one of the biggest hills you have to climb because after that, it almost all becomes a bit of a knock-on effect. And you start to find people who are a little bit more interested who will give you that time. Your security teams will start to care more because they've seen a piece of training helped them and they want to see more of it. So I think the biggest hurdle is to get the program in place. And then it's to start looking, start looking at how do you evolve it and how do you nurture it and how do you become a bit more innovative in it? If you are in an organization that isn't going to invest resource into your program, get the data and get the information you need to start showing them the risk that is to the business. Because that is all we are here to do is reduce risk. And if we are doing it to be compliant, we are not necessarily reducing the level of risk we could if there was more investment there. And if you look at recent breaches and recent fines that have been handed out by the ICO because of it, you start to open people's eyes to, we could do the bare minimum, but it's no longer good enough. So why don't we try to do the right thing? And by doing the right thing and working towards being secure, we will automatically start becoming compliant. Compliance isn't the end goal. It's a stepping stone to get to where we need to get to. I love that. There's a quote out of there that's, that's I know I can see now on the front of this episode. There's a big point in there about the piece on when you're measuring behaviors, people look at it and go, oh my God, there's so many. For example, in SEBDB, which is a free resource at CyberSafe offer, is there's 70 plus behaviors in there. People look at it and go, well, okay, where do I start? And I think each organization is different, similar to the people in it. Everybody is different. So your risks are going to be different to the next. So you might listen to this podcast. You might go listen to another podcast to listen to and they speak to somebody in the community. And I'll tell you, yeah, we focus on these things. We focus on these. But it's all very well that these programs might target these behaviors. But then, then measuring the effectiveness of the training. How are you doing that? How are you looking at it and going, okay, well, we've trained this many people. We have spoken to this many people. We've mitigated these many cybersecurity behavioral risks. But then 
you haven't got a baseline. You're not measuring it at a point in time to then say, yeah, we were here. We are now here. Imagine if you could turn around and be like, yeah, we've taken this person who used to do this and had this kind of these behaviors. I mean, very general about this. I do understand. We've now nurtured them. We've helped them. We've guided them. We've coached them. We've influenced them. And we've got them to this point where they used to be at a certain risk level. They're now here. That is visible risk change and behavioral change. As long as you keep measuring it into the future, it's so important. It's so important. Hugely. And I think we under, I absolutely love SEBDB because I think prior to having become aware of it, I used to fight that battle all the time and just say, it's not, it's not true that phishing is our only metric. It just isn't true. You're talking about a behavior, behavior is an action and action can be measured. So now I don't have to fight that battle. I just direct them to SEBDB and just say, well, look at that. Those are all things you can action, actions that you can measure. I completely agree with you. And I, I think that because of the history of security awareness, we are not yet in that mindset. And one of the things that my team were really fortunate in is that we came from a technology risk and compliance team. So we couldn't be the only team not measuring risk and compliance. So yes, the compliance is how many people are doing our training, but how do you measure that that risk element to it? And it is how do you measure the behavior? And to measure behavior, you need to understand the baseline before you then maybe issue your training or go about coaching or launch some type of learning initiative. And then you measure it again afterwards. And some of this is a learning experience. You might find that you had zero impact on behavior, but then for your team's sake, you know that you invested all of this time and energy into something that didn't work. So let's go and try something else. And you can break it down to, to, to any type of thing, right? It could be as simple as if you are going to try to stop people tailgating their way into your business, go and sit at one of your secure access doorways and with a clicker and figure out how many people are tailgating Monday through Friday. Or maybe just Monday, because that could be quite a tedious and boring job Monday through Friday. But say you're going to go and do that and then issue your training and do it again after and see if you had an impact. You just have to get a, a little bit creative in the things that you want to try to achieve to prove it. But the point is you then have tangible data to prove you are having an impact on risk reduction. Yeah, for sure. And and the um the some of it, I've read this again, I think I'm calling out the Forrester report again here, but was talking about we sometimes might even need to just get out of people's way. And there are things that we can measure without actually giving them and change without giving them any form of, of training metric or anything or, or training education package, whatever it is, coaching nudge you can measure it without actually having to do any of that and, and get in their way and actually have an ask from them. Because ultimately, like you said earlier in the podcast, you're expecting people to want to do cybersecurity. We get up, we live it, we breathe it, we enjoy it 99% of the time. And I thought a minute ago, we were going to dive into that fishing argument, which I was going to have to caveat and say that we cannot, we cannot do that. That's for um, another time um, over a drink, 100%. Um, so yeah, there's, there's so many valuable things that, that you can do, but it's having a more targeted approach and being specific around it. And also knowing what you're not going to do. Cause I think that's really, that's been a learning for my team is there's so many behaviors. And to your point, there's so many on set DV. How do you know what you're not going to do? How do you know what's going to reduce the biggest amount of risk and hypothesize over it? Right. Cause we're all learning in this field. The field has, isn't as advanced as it could be. And there aren't enough solutions or tools out there that will help us to get to the point where we are all hoping to be today. So I actually experiment with it. And if you think that in an attempt to get to a certain place, you need to not do something else, then don't do that something else. Obviously don't choose not to do the highest risk behavioral change. But if there are two types of behaviors and one outranks the other, 
Don't put your energy and time into one. Throw everything you have into a certain one and make sure that that's the one that you're going to focus on. Because a lack of focus can mean that you're doing a, a, a million and one things and achieving nothing. And I think that's the other thing that measuring contributes to is because you can be a really busy team and you can be running around like headless chickens, making a lot of noise and speaking to a lot of people. But actually suddenly when you've got a metric that you need to hold yourself to account over, it creates focus like never before. It's a podcast I listen to that is deciding in a year, like we could do everything, we could try to do everything, but you're never realistically, you're never going to get to the end of your to-do list, but it's choosing what you're going to be bad at for that particular amount of time. But in a, on a similar note, it's choosing what you're not going to approach and so on. With the kind of looking to the future in the same vein, I suppose, what are your predictions for 2023 and probably beyond as we, we know that this isn't going to go anywhere? Where do you think we're heading as an industry? I think that hyper-personalization element that you were talking about earlier is definitely something that we're going to start working towards because I think the more that we can work security into people's day jobs and their processes and their daily habits, tack it on to something that exists, don't create something brand new. I think the more we do that, and I, I hear and see more people working towards that. So I think 2023 will be a year where that becomes quite a big thing. I think we are moving absolutely in the right direction, but I think that is something that's going to take us a long time to perfect. So we are just going to see the beginnings of that that innovation come about. And we're going to see people do it really well. We're going to see people do it not so well. But I think understanding our population more is going to be the thing that we'll invest a lot of our time and energy and effort into in the visionary approach of we will get to that hypervisualization. I am not saying we will get there by 2023, but I am saying we'll try to be agile in our approach to doing it. And maybe we'll start with a particular subset of colleagues or a particular high risk role and figure out how do we get this right and where have we got it wrong? And then how do we then begin to scale that more and more and more? But I think the one size fits all approach for, for our industry and for people who are trying to grow more innovative is something that we should leave in the past. Does this mean you're trying to say that Rome wasn't built in a day? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've heard rumors that it wasn't, but you know, let's let's see, let's see if something similar can be done in less than a day. Yeah, if Rome was a vast amount of cybercrime and policies and um, people trying to all do the same thing. No, thank you for that insight. Really cool. We're kind of coming to the end of the podcast. I usually like to end on a kind of final note of passing on knowledge, um, interests, and, and so on. So what are you currently watching, reading, listening to that you would recommend to any of our listeners? Books, films, TV, it could be something completely separate to what we've talked about. What would you, what would be the thing? I think in terms of trying to understand, because I'm, whilst I'm not an expert in it, I am absolutely fascinated by all things neuroscience related. So Huberman Lab podcast is something I listened to quite a lot recently. It's a very neuroscience focused podcast on our perceptions of behaviors and, and, and how that impacts what we do and, and really just how the brain works and what drives some of our actions. So I'm really enjoying that at the minute. As my team grows and develops, I'm listening a lot to Craig Groeschel's leadership channel um, and he's got a podcast with it because I think he can be savage in some of the things that he says, but it all comes from a really good place and a really refined approach to how do we achieve our vision and our goal 
and make sure we bring all the right people along with us on this journey. And I think sometimes I can err on the side of, well, if that's, if you're really passionate about that, then I'll try to support you in it and we'll just figure out how to make that part of your hobby. And I think to get to where we need to go, we need to know what we are not going to do. And, and I think he's really, really good at that. And then a bit of an off the wall one. Have you ever heard of like the Chicago Fire Med PD type shows? Somebody recommended those to me the other week. Oh my goodness. I, so I love them because they're three distinctively separate shows, but they all overlap and all the characters come into play with each other. But one that is, so I watch Chicago Fire more than any of the others. And what I love about Chicago Fire, and I'm not sure if it works the same here in the UK as it does in America, but their firefighters have to be prepared for absolutely anything absolutely anything. Like they can get called out for a fire. They can get called out for an explosion. Their paramedics can get called out over all kinds of different things because paramedics work in fire stations over there. Like it's all kind of bizarre. But the thing that I'm, I'm taking from that is there is no scenario they're not prepared for, despite the fact they may have never come into any type of training that trained them for that specific event. So how do we take that kind of ability and apply it to cybersecurity because it, gone are the days where you can go, I hope I don't get breached. And we all now need to be preparing for the day that we are breached. So how do you prepare your cyber teams and any relevant team to respond to an incident in a way that you would have never seen coming, but give them the right insight and training and evidence and everything that they need to be able to do that well? And I think whilst it's a really interesting and juicy drama that I take away from it a lot. And I keep looking at that thinking there's got to be something, a golden nugget in here somewhere that we can start applying to the field of security awareness and training. That's amazing. What a point to finish on. Um, <laughs> Alicia, from me and the entire tribe at CyberSafe, thank you for your time, wisdom, knowledge, everything that you have just imparted on our listeners. I will be listening to this, I think, over and over again to take all of the bits that I probably now noted down and, and kind of marked on the podcast as wanting to go back and listen to. Thank you so much. I hope you have enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, it's been brilliant having you on. No, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to come and have a say.